Now, if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 2. I'm keeping it easy for you guys this time. We're staying in the same book. We're in our series called Bold. And the idea behind this series is that the life God has called you to is a life that requires courage. It's a a life that requires fearlessness. You have to be bold if you are going to live out and take hold of all of the things that God has called you to. And I remember the first time that comes to my conscious memory of feeling this need for boldness in my life. It was back in the year 1999. I was just a young nine-year-old Jeremy. And there were a lot of things going on in the world. It was a historic year. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in that year. East and West Germany were reunited economically. Uh, the, the, um, who, what was that band? I'm trying to think. You remember that song, Step by Step? New Street, yeah, uh, New Kids on the Block. They tried to summon the four horsemen of the apocalypse by releasing that song on us. But perhaps most importantly, it was the year that I first laid my eyes on the prettiest girl in Mr. Costin's fourth grade class, Gina Noto. And I remember, remember that first little infatuation, that first crush that you had? You felt those butterflies. Like, what are people talking about butterflies in your heart and in your stomach? And I was like, oh gosh, I feel them. And as I was gazed at her beauty, I was spellbound by it. And after several hours of careful consideration, I decided this would be my bride. That I was going to profess my undying love to her, that she would be my wife and I would be her husband and we'd raise a, a litter of children. We'd ride off on a white stallion into the sunset. Like I had it all planned out as a fourth grader. So I thought, I can't just go up to the woman of my dreams and drop this on her. I've got to prove myself first. First. And it's like, well, what can I do that's really going to impress her so that she will, you know, want to be with me? I thought, I'm pretty good at tetherball. So what I'm going to do is, at recess, I'm going to wait till she's watching. I'm going to step into that tetherball court. I'm going to display to her what a, an alpha male dominant person I really am that she wants to be with. So I thought, I'm going to show her how good I am at tetherball. And then while she's still googly-eyed about that, I'm going to take you over to the monkey bars where I will hang by my knees upside down and tell her that I want to marry her. But back then, we called it going out. We, I was, my plan was, hey, will you go out with me? And you never went out anywhere because you were fourth graders. You had no money or cars. But that was called going out. Basically, it meant that you could walk with them at recess. And then if things went really well, you were going steady. And that meant that you got to sit next to each other at lunch, too. Exclusive rights. Now, for guys, that could be a lot of commitment because then you're sitting at the girl table. And, you know, I'm like, I'm not sure if I want to get that far yet, but we'll take it slow and see what happens. So lunch arrives, and I go out there, and I'm getting ready to play tetherball, but I see Gene Morris playing, and this kid had been in fourth grade like four times. And I'm like, there's no way I'm playing Gene Moore. He's going to humiliate me. So instead, I'm just trying to follow her around. I go stand next to her by the soccer ball field, and then go over by the baseball players. I'm just following around. I'm trying to make small talk, but instead of telling her how much I love her and the great plan I have for us to get married— I'm talking about things like Trapper Keeper covers. Like, yeah, did you see that new one with the unicorn on it? Yeah, that's pretty sweet. I think I'm going to get that one. I'm talking about my L.A. gear lights. Do you guys remember those? The seizure-inducing shoes? <laughs> but the whole time, I, I'd never do it. I, I chicken out completely. And then as the bell rings and we're going back into class, she turns away from me to go back to class. And so then I turn my head away from her, too, and I'm like, will you go out with me? And she stops and she looks back. She's like, what was that, Germ? She called me Germ. Three-syllable names like Jeremy were too hard in fourth grade. So she's like, what was that, Germ? And I'm like, no, nothing. I think I swallowed a bug maybe or something. 
And then she went in, and I never professed my love to her. That was it. I had my chance, and I blew it. Because I lacked courage. I wasn't fearless. If I was telling her something simple, like, I like pizza, or blue's my favorite color, I would have been able to do that. Because that's not a bold statement. But when you tell someone that you're going to marry them and raise a family with them, that's a bold statement. And it requires a boldness that matches the statement you're making. And that's the way it is for the disciples and the apostles. Really for all of us, as we're going out there and we're preaching the message of Jesus, it's a bold message. And it requires a boldness that matches the message itself. And that's why the disciples, when they got together and they were praying, it says in Acts chapter 4, 29-31, And now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now the phrase that they're using there, uh, we preach your word, later they start calling that the gospel. And what the gospel means is, it was a Greek word that meant the good news. It was an announcement of good news. And the way it was most commonly used for them in this time was, whenever a new emperor would ascend to the throne, they would send out heralds into all the farthest reaches of the empire and they would go there and they would preach the gospel of emperor, let's just say, Julius Caesar. And so they would go into the town and they would say, good news, we have a new emperor. His name is Julius Caesar. He is the Lord and Savior who will establish peace, justice, and bring blessings to the world. And then they would say, now bend your knee and swear fealty and adjust your life to match the rule of the new emperor. And not only that, I mean, doesn't this kind of sound a lot like what's being prophesied about Jesus in the book of Isaiah? The emperor is basically being a cheap rip-off, knock-off version of who Jesus was. And they gave him the title of Pontifus Maximus, which meant that he was the high priest. They thought so highly of their emperors that they said, these are divine people, these are sons of God. And when they die, they're going to ascend into heaven to take the rightful place as a son of God. And so what happens is, the disciples come into this context and to this understanding of the gospel, and they start saying, no, we're here preaching the real good news, not that some emperor has ascended the throne, but we're teaching you that Jesus has come. We're announcing the good news of Jesus. And as they're doing that, they start acting like that. They're a herald that goes out into all the farthest parts of the world, and they declare this good news, that Jesus has come, that he brings peace, and that he brings justice, that he is Lord, that he is King. And as they do this thing, they're, I mean, like thousands and thousands of people are hearing this message and their lives are being completely changed forever. And a part of that claim of the gospel and a part of the announcement of the, the news of Jesus is that just like when a new emperor takes control, there has to be some change that occurs in your life. When Jesus, the king of all king, comes, it means that there has to be some move and response in our hearts as well. And that's because the gospel of Jesus is, number one, a bold claim. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter's preaching, he says this in the first sermon he ever preached at Pentecost, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, saying that Jesus is Lord and Christ is an incredibly bold claim. It's a claim that has the potential to offend absolutely every single person on the face of the planet. I mean, everybody's covered in that statement. 
And it's a statement that for the disciples and the apostles and many still today, when you proclaim that message, it can cost you your life. But the first thing he says is that this Jesus whom you crucified, he is the Christ. And what that means is that he's the Messiah. Because ever since uh, the original sin and Adam and Eve fell and they were cast out of the garden and we saw the breakdown of relationship between us and God and the breakdown of relationship between us and other people and all of creation itself is affected by the sin that was introduced into the world, uh, there's been this groaning, there's been these problems that we continue to encounter. The world is not as it should be. There is pain, there's hurt, there's suffering, there's death. All these things that were never supposed to be now exist in our society and in the world at large. But God, even at the very beginning when that happened, he said, someday I am going to send someone who's going to be the Messiah. And they're going to put everything right again. They're going to restore everything. And so all through the Old Testament, as you look, you continue to see more prophecies about this Messiah that God was going to send who he was going to be, the things that he was going to do. And then we see Jesus. All of Israel has been looking forward to this Messiah coming. But when Jesus comes, they don't recognize him as being the Messiah. Because what's happened is over time, their perception of what it was that they needed has changed. They thought that the Messiah, the salvation that they needed, the restoration of all things, looked like Israel becoming the major player in the world market again. They thought they'd be the most powerful. Well, they thought what we need is for the Roman oppressors to be cast off of us. We need to be rich again. Uh, we need to be famous. These are the kind of things that they were looking for their Messiah to bring. So when a Jewish peasant, that's a carpenter of stock, comes, they don't recognize him as being the Messiah. And so when he goes around and starts saying, hey, I'm the Messiah that God has sent, but not just that, I am God himself and I have the ability to forgive your sins? First of all, they're saying, why would we need God to come here? Why do we need forgiveness of our sins? We can sacrifice animals all day long. But when that happens, they, they think this is blasphemous. The reason that the Sanhedrin wanted to have Jesus crucified was because he claimed to be God. He said, I am the Son of God. I'm the one that has the ability to forgive your sins. And that's the reason that they took him to the cross. Because Jesus came as the Messiah, the one who came to restore all things, not the things that we thought we needed, like uh, you know finances and uh, power and domination of the world stages. He came to fix the real issue that's behind every other issue that we have, is that we were disconnected from our Father through sin. And he came to remove the sin from us. This Jesus who we see, the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and he is the one that takes away the sins of the world. Saying that to the Jewish elite at the time was an incredibly dangerous message. And it's a dangerous message even today. When you tell someone that they need a Messiah, someone who forgives their sins and restores things, that can be something that other people are offended by. And Jesus recognized that. And that's why he said, blessed are you if you're not offended by me. He never changed the message. He never changed what he came to do. He just said, this is what I'm here for. If you're not offended by that, then you're going to be very blessed. The second thing was that uh, Peter was saying here was that Jesus is the king. When he said that he is the Lord, the word Lord there means that he is the ruler over all things. He is the king of all kings. He has all authority and all power. Now this really offended the Romans because Caesar, remember, he's the one that thinks that he is the son of God. 
He's the one that thinks that he is the ruler over all things. So when someone else comes and says that I have authority and power even over you, now Caesar's mad. And the way that Caesar dealt with that was he considered that to be treason, and so they would have them killed. And for us, when we come and we say that Jesus is the Lord over all things, not just that he's some cosmic Lord that reigns and rules from far away, but that he's the one that we come to and we say, Jesus, you're Lord over my life itself, that you're Lord over the decisions that I make, that you are the Lord who I order my life after in every area. That's something that is also very offensive to many people, and we have to be filled with a boldness as we go out and proclaim that message, that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the Son of God, and he is also the King of all kings. He is the one who reigns and rules supremely over all things. And then number two, the gospel has a bold call. On my wedding day, one of my clearest memories is as I was sitting up there with the bridesmaids and my best man was over here next to me and there's the pastor and all that stuff, you know, it's kind of passing. You're glad to see the bridesmaids walk up. You're like, hey, glad you're here. But then, Canon and D started. And that's when I, my attention was really caught because Canon and D, that, was like the, that song announced the coming of my wife, that my bride was about to walk down the aisle to meet me. And as I looked at her and I saw her, it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my entire life. And I look at her and I'm just beaming, I'm filled with joy and she's crying. And I'm like, well, that doesn't bode well. <laughs> I'm pretty excited to be getting married, but apparently she's terrified and distraught by the sight of me. This is going to be a real rough rest of her life. But as she was coming, it wasn't just that she was coming to come up there and you know, hang out with me or see how good I looked in a tux. She was approaching, she was coming down the aisle for a reason. There was expectation that was involved in her approaching me. That we were going to exchange vows that we were going to vow to submit ourselves to one another, to humble ourselves before each other, to elevate each other's needs above our own for the rest of our life. From that moment on, every aspect of my life changed. And I'm continuing to be changed by those vows that I made and by the love that my wife and I share with each other. There's a call that goes along with a wedding. I'm called to a new way of life. And the same thing happens when Jesus comes. The announcement of the arrival of King Jesus isn't just for, a, oh, I'm glad that now I mentally have knowledge of that. It comes with a call, just like when Anna came down the aisle to me, is that my life is going to change now. That I have to submit myself. That I have to bend my knee, so to speak. And that my life now has to adjust to the new reality of Jesus as the Lord that has come. In Acts uh, chapter 2, we see Paul as he's continuing to preach. Not Paul, Peter, sorry. Peter and Paul are robbing each other, something like that. But in Acts chapter 2, after everybody has heard the announcement of the coming of King Jesus, it says um, in verses 37 through 39, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the call of the gospel, uh, the message that comes along with the coming of our King to us, the coming of our Savior, is that now we need to repent of our sins. 
It takes boldness to preach that message. That your entire life needs to now change. And when it says repentance, it doesn't just mean you say, okay, God, forgive me of my sins, go out, and okay, God, forgive me of my sins, I'm going to keep doing this. Like, I've found a, a loophole in God's system where now I can do anything I want as long as I ask for forgiveness of my sins. This idea of repentance means that I was living my life one way, and now I have turned from that, and I have turned to God, and my life now is moving towards him. Now, that doesn't mean that you will never sin again. It doesn't mean that you're not going to continue to struggle with issues of you know, wanting to do things that don't line up with the king's call on your life. But what it means is that you've turned away from the old life you were living and its wills and its desires, and now you're allowing Jesus to put new wills and new desires in you, and you're saying, God, I submit myself to you, that you truly are the Lord. You are the king, and I recognize you as such. And now in response to that, I'm repenting from my sin, and I'm turning to you. I don't want to live the way that I used to live anymore. Jesus, I want to live in the new way that you have called me to live. Jesus makes this a very steep demand. He says, if any one of you would come after me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. You can't follow Jesus without first picking up a cross. And what he's saying in this is that that old way of life has to die. You can't receive the new life that Jesus came to give you until you first die to the old life that you have been living. That's a hard thing to say to people. That's an offensive thing to many people. But it's the life-changing power of the gospel that's alive and at work inside of us. And the good thing about this, what makes all of this easier to surrender ourselves to the king is when we look at the promises made in the gospel because uh, the gospel makes bold promises. Uh, Every time there would be a new emperor, there were lots of uh, blessings. Like the emperor, look at politicians today. They say, hey, if you elect me, man, everything's going to be awesome. You guys, you're going to have, like, you're going to wake up on Christmas morning, you're going to have more presents than you used to have. You're going to be able to eat candy, you won't get cavities. I mean, presidential candidates promise the world to you, and then they never deliver. The same thing happened with the emperors. They'd say, life is going to be great, you're going to have peace and prosperity and everything else that you want. But they never delivered on that. What really happened was that when you went before the emperor, when that announcement was made, when you bent your knee to them, it meant that now there were going to be new taxes that were imposed upon you. It meant that he was going to enslave you to have you build roads and monuments and different things like that. That the emperor was going to use you to continue to advance his own causes and his own interest in the empire. But with Jesus as king, it's completely different. We are the beneficiaries. We are the ones who receive incredible blessing. See, when a, when a free man goes before an emperor, you bend your knee to them and then you rise again as a slave to that emperor. But when you come to Jesus, it's different. We come to Jesus as broken slaves and we bend our knee to him and when we rise up again, we're free people who rise as sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ. He didn't come to enslave us. He came to free us. And when you become one of those who has surrendered your life to Jesus, you begin to receive the promises and the blessings that come along with the gospel. The first one is that our sins are forgiven. See, Jesus came and he laid his life down to atone for your sin. He paid the full penalty for every sin you've ever committed, every sin you ever will commit. He bore the penalty for all of that on the cross. 
You don't have to live with shame or condemnation or guilt anymore. You don't have to live feeling distant and separate from God because Jesus came to make you a joint heir, a son or a daughter of the living God. And the second thing that happens is that you receive the Holy Spirit. And that means that God himself will come and dwell in you. What I love about the story of Adam and Eve is it says that God would come and he would walk with them in the cool of the evening. They had this relationship with God where his tangible presence was there. It was the reality of their life. And in the Holy Spirit, what happens is, once again, the God who seems so distant from us because of our sins, now God pours the Holy Spirit into us when we make the decision to bend our knee to King Jesus and receive forgiveness of our sins. Now the presence of God comes back into us. And you never feel orphaned, you never feel abandoned, you never feel alone because the king of all kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things comes and he resides and he dwells inside of you. Times of refreshing will come to you, Paul said. He said that when you accept the gospel and submit your life to the message of the gospel, uh, it says that he's going to pour out peace on you, that you're going to be filled with joy. Now, so many times we live our lives and we feel the exact opposite. We don't feel refreshed. We feel depleted. We feel worn out. We feel a sense of urgency for purpose in life, but we can never find it. We live with a restlessness that we can't get rid of. We're a people who are battered by the wind. But it says that when Jesus becomes your king, that he pours out times of refreshing on your soul. And then also resurrection from the dead. And when I was a kid, this was the hardest part for me to understand. It's like, okay, I understand, Jesus, why you had to come and why you had to die on the cross. You know, that was to forgive our sins. But why is it so important that you were raised from the dead? I thought about this and I thought about it and I asked people questions and a lot of people didn't have answers or they had really crazy answers. And then as I continued to pray and, and search scripture, I realized that the importance of Jesus being raised from the dead is that it proves that he was God, number one, because normal mortal people can't defeat death. You die and you're gone. Every other religious figure in all of history, they have died and they are no longer alive. But Jesus is the one who proved that he really was the Son of God, that he really was the atoning sacrifice for our sins because he himself was raised from the dead. He has defeated the power of sin and death. Like we were talking about in that song, Blessed Assurance. We have assurance now that we are saved, that we are part of the family of God, and the proof of it was that Jesus was raised from the dead. There's no better sign that you can have than a risen Savior. But the second part of it is this, is that you yourself now have the assurance of a resurrected life. That when you die, that's not the end of the story for you. It means that there is more it means that Jesus really is going to restore all things. That there is going to be a day when he returns and we all become like him and we receive new resurrected bodies where you all have receding hairlines like mine and big noses. We all have our perfect bodies. You people with full heads of hair, you're going to be very disappointed. But it means that all of creation, all of the world is going to be restored. No more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. These things will all be banished. Life will be the way it was always supposed to be. Not just talking about humans, but all of creations. And so that means that for you cat people, your cats are finally going to be cool. They're going to be like dogs when Jesus returns and restores all things. I got us way off track here. I'm sorry. <laughs> Those are the promises of the gospel. But now, the last thing is that the gospel requires a bold response. 
And that's why the disciples prayed, God, make us bold. As we proclaim the gospel, as we announce the good news that this Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead, he is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the one that God promised would come and restore all things. Give us boldness as we proclaim that Jesus is the King, that he reigns and rules over all. God, make us bold as we go out there and tell people about the call of the gospel to bend our knee to Jesus, to surrender our lives to him. God, make us bold as we proclaim the promises of the gospel, the benefits that we receive, the freedom that comes into us, the new life that comes into us. But God, also make us bold in the way that we respond to this. Because our king has come the Savior of all the world, the one who removes the sins, he's come. And now it requires a response on our part. It means that we have to repent of our sin. There used to be kings that were reigning and ruling in our life, whether it be materialism or greed, selfishness, or whether it just be you. See, we all have a king that's already reigning and ruling over our body. But in order for Jesus to be king, it means that the old king has to be dethroned. God, give us boldness because that's not something that's easy to do. Help us to dethrone the old king of me that was reigning in my life and leading me into destruction and making me a slave so that you can be exalted to the highest seat of authority inside of my life so that I can receive the blessings of the forgiveness of my sins so that I can receive the Holy Spirit inside of me so that I have the hope of the resurrection. The message of Jesus is this. You can continue to live as a slave. You can continue to live separate from me in a life that leads to destruction. Or you can come and bend your knee to me, submit yourself to me, and I will make you free. I will make you a son. I will make you a daughter. You will be adopted into my family. I will forgive all of your sins. I will pour out my Holy Spirit on you. You will receive every blessing that comes along with that because when you're a subject of the kingdom of God, you receive the benefits of the kingdom of God in your life. But it requires a bold response. And as we go out and we preach the gospel message, we can never change that part of it. It always requires a response. And for us, every day of our lives, it requires a response in the way that we continue to live as subjects in the kingdom of God. You all stand with me this morning. You know, every time someone responds to the message of the gospel, it's because something miraculous has taken place. Sometimes you see like the apostles were talking about, there were signs and wonders, someone got healed or you know, someone uh, had a demon cast out of them, something like that, and people took note and they said, this message that they're preaching is true. I can see that. This is the proof of it. Something miraculous just occurred. But even if that hasn't happened in your life, there's still something miraculous that occurs every time that we preach the gospel with boldness and every time someone responds is they've had an encounter with the King of all kings. They've had an encounter with the God who loves them enough to save them. He's become real to them, and that is absolutely miraculous. So this morning, would you guys pray with me? This morning, as I've just been sharing with you what the gospel is, if you've been having an encounter with God, he's been revealing himself to you as a king, or maybe 
you're now realizing that I haven't been living my life with a bent knee to Jesus and his plan for my life. Maybe I haven't been living with him as my savior. Now's your opportunity to respond to the call of the king on your life and to walk into the promises that he has for you. So every eye is closed. But if that's you this morning and you need to respond to that and surrender your life to Jesus, you'd be bold enough to raise your hand with me as a sign to Jesus that you are my king. You are the one that I will follow every day of my life. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's pray this. If, If that's something that's happening in your heart right now, let's pray this together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for coming as the Messiah. Would you forgive my sins? Jesus, thank you for coming as the King. And now I bend my knee to you. I make you the King of my life. And I will follow you all of my days. Father, would you now send the Holy Spirit? Would you fill me with your very presence? When you make yourself real in my life, would you lead me and guide me? Would you fill me with joy and peace and hope? With everything I am, I love you. And I surrender my life to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.